Hello and welcome to another episode of BZ Listening. I am your host, BZ Douglas, an independent journalist based in Cleveland, Ohio, covering police abuse, prosecutorial misconduct, and political corruption. My guest today is Jimmy Fallon Gong, the pseudonymous host of the podcast Program to Chill, which describes itself as a show about business, crime, parapolitics, and esoterica. I expect I'll have two distinct audiences for this show, Jimmy's audience and my own. Now, for my people, Jimmy does multi-part deep dives into the history of intelligence agencies who financed Hitler, the industrialists who profited and persisted around World War I and II, uh, and further, international spycraft, and it only gets darker and weirder from there. Jimmy's got a wry and dry style of breaking down his research on dark and slippery topics that I enjoy quite a bit. Uh, In the interview, I told him that I I think of him as like the Stephen Wright of uh, conspiracy content production. Uh, And I would say if you're just not familiar with him at all, it might be a good idea to go take in a few episodes of his show before you dive into this one. So for those of you who came here to learn more about Jimmy, because you do listen to his show, uh, I feel the need to qualify that this episode turned out to be less of an interview and more of a conversation that I was just dying to have. I mean, I've taken in about at least, what, 40, 50 hours of his podcast, so there was a lot of pent-up perspectives and experiences I wanted to share with him based on, you know, Things that I've done, things that I know, and and things that I'm doing now and how I feel like they uh, connect with the world he's in. Um, So as such, I've edited out a few of my more long-winded recollections about my experiences and like Occupy and uh, stories that I've uh, been working. Um, If you want to learn about those, uh, you can go back through my podcast or YouTube archives to find episodes about that stuff. Uh, Also... Cut out of this release is our conversation about the lefty online drama surrounding uh, conspiracy theories, specifically the video Conspiracy on the Left by the streamer Sophie from Mars. I decided that I want to produce a more thorough and expansive response to that video, and that conversation will be a part of it, but for now it's it's something I just wanted to, you know, nip out of this because the conversation kind of flows well if you just take that out. However, if you really want to hear all of my stories or just can't wait to hear our takes on Sophie's video, I'm happy to accommodate your curiosity slash impatience for a price. My full unedited interview with Jimmy, save a legally necessary redaction or two, is available for Patreon subscribers. And, uh, you know, my lowest tier is a buck. So, you know, if you really want it, then uh, kick me a buck. And you can bounce right off if you need to. But I wish you'd stick around. Uh, That said, so there's still a lot left in this interview. We talk about our paths to paranoia, why more people should be more paranoid and attentive to local issues, some of his podcast's greatest hits, and the origins and reasoning for Jimmy's cheeky alias and attempts to, you know, maintain anonymity. So before I roll the interview, I just really do want to say a big thank you to Jimmy for the excellent discussion and the work he does. I found my new partner in podcasting, Philip Fairbanks, via an interview on Jimmy's Patreon. 
uh, the last two episodes were interviews with Phil. And last week, Phil and I launched episode one of Walking the Wire, a podcast that will cast a critical but affectionate eye uh, on the groundbreaking HBO series by David Simon. You can visit walkingthewirepod.com to subscribe and look for Jimmy to appear as a guest on a future episode. All right, so thank you so much for listening. Let's get started. Uh, now, here is my conversation with Jimmy Fallon Gong. About it with you and DMs, and it's so it's the first thing I got published, which then prompted me to be like, I like I like doing this. This was pretty amazing to suss out and make happen, and it all comes back to uh, there was a Reddit comment on this thread about sus organizers popping up in Oklahoma city, Phoenix, uh, Portland, and then a commenter about one in Cleveland. And so I, I DM'd him and I was like, tell me more. And, um, I also during this time, like, um, found, uh, like was watching live streams of local protests. And I zeroed in on three guys who really was like, everything they were saying kind of matched patterns uh, as the same thing that came out of nowhere. They had these bizarre social media profiles that did not, did not an activist make. Mm -hmm. And, but they were getting protests with huge turnouts and the mayor was coming to them and police were kneeling at them and stuff. So (laughs) I, you know, won over the, the like sort of like warmed up this, this other guy on the internet, this other rando, and he shared more with me. And I, this specifically this Facebook post where the sus organizer here in Cleveland claimed to have like, uh, that there were some white activists that were questioning his credibility. Well, I want everyone to know that, um, the event I'm organizing in honor of Tamir Rice, uh, is sanctioned by his mother samaria in fact i've talked to her on the phone every day and she's the first person i think of in this and this and this long story short um i was able to through my own contacts get in touch with samaria rice and she's like i i don't really know him he talked mm-hmm. to me about it and i was like no and he was trying to get me on, go on msnbc with him and i'm like no i don't know you like they had a very tenuous connection like the guy had uh, their family had taken a dog that she had, her family had to get rid of. And when it died, he didn't even tell her. So anyway, long story short, it was this crazy conspiratorial thing where with the guy I sussed out, you know, and comp- exposed, um, I don't know what the deeper story is with him, but I do know that the event he threw was not, it was in the park where this, where Tamir Rice was killed, first of all. His mother did not explicitly sanction it, second of all. Third of all, the event itself, people danced the Macarena. They, um, they, they had merch. They had um, all this music, and it was like a let's celebrate life thing. And um, no real calls to action for the moment that George, the summer of George Floyd could, you know, can really mean. Um, and on the same day, there was a very pointed uh, protest with demands for accountability in the shooting and killing of Desmond Franklin by an off-duty police officer in Cleveland named Jose Garcia. And like uh, the ex- this one cop's driving right alongside him and shooting him through the window and kills mm-hmm. him. Um, which, so anyway, these two things were going on the same day. And 
the ultimate result of this, it's, you know, um, is on a media level, I, I looked at the coverage from a local affiliate and they did the protests of the day and the Desmond Franklin March got about 10 seconds. It's like a lot of people were downtown at the Justice Center. Meanwhile, and then interviews with everybody at the, the, the bullshit event. Yeah. And that took up 50 seconds versus 10 seconds. So, you know, whether or not the guy that I was digging out has, you know, any sort of nefarious deeper connections or he's just an, an ego and an opportunist, uh, a cloud seeker trying to use the moment to put, you know, something on his resume but and doing it tastelessly and clumsily, I don't know. But... Uh, yeah, I just bring all this up to say that like, so on this very local level, I started out digging into what was like, essentially just like, well, people are lying. If you get down to like, what's, what's a conspiracy, someone's lying and they're taking advantage of a political moment for some reason. And it's it's been two ish, almost like, you know, climbing on two years now I've been doing this. And, um, as someone who went through my own and we'll get into this once I get past this whole preamble, I'm riffing out, um, you know, it's somewhere along the lines. I started to, you know, uh, recognize that, um, a lot of the conspiracies that I felt have gone on amongst powerful people in different, um, major, uh, moments in history, uh, and, and the behaviors that you see that allow things like Iraq to happen with the subservience to the press and the domination of military and corporate interests, like all that stuff happens at the local level, too. And there's mm-hmm. all this shadiness at the local level, too, that you can actually really find out and dig into. Yeah. And um, so it's like I went through this arc as far as conspiratorial stuff with like 9-11 in Iraq happened in my early 20s. And I really... Um, it killed my apathy to politics and the news. I just thought that was a personality trait. Oh, you're into the politics. That's cool. I'm not, I don't like sports, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and then I started finding journalists like Greg Palast and a lot of the work from, uh, there was an anthology called into the buzzsaw and yeah. that had a lot of great stuff. And that's when I just, and then, over the years I have tried, you know, if you're a fan of the wire, you might know the term exhaustion Mm -hmm. and with the political process, I've tried exhaustion as far as like this and that and moving into journalism and sort of like investigating and being critique, being independent and not having to like serve a role in some organization that I have to trust is the best means for things. So, um, yeah. Um, so to bring it all back to like getting into interviewing you as far as like talking about myself, but this is the first time we've actually talked. Yeah. And um, I guess I would ask what was your first crack in reality or where, what rabbit holes have you been down and the arc that kind of led you to where you're now producing this podcast? Yeah, no, for sure. Like I would say like, <laughs> Uh, my background, and some people might find this humorous, but I was actually a Mormon missionary, right? Doing doing the suit and tie, all that, bothering people, knocking on their doors and things. Uh, but I was actually assigned to learn Spanish, which I did. And I was working with uh, immigrant communities here in the United States. And I found that 
a large number of the people I was working with were actually Guatemalan. And I was like, oh, I don't know anything about Guatemala. I'll talk to them, you know. And, you know, whether or not you think, like, missionary work is good, like, you spend a lot of time trying to help people, right? So, like, I actually translated some of their court documents, for example, and I was reading and I was finding that a lot of them were actually either they had received asylum or they were attempting to receive asylum. And I was like, asylum from what? And so I was like, oh, damn, there was a civil war in Guatemala. Like, I don't know anything, you know, like. So I start like reading about what, why is there a civil war in Guatemala? Oh, you know, the, the coup in Guatemala from the 50s, right? Like, Now, oh, is this uh, the fruit? Companies, mm-hmm. United Fruit Company, the uh, CIA overthrew them. Alan Dulles, of course, was on the board of United Fruit, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And then, in and the, I don't like, know if like we can constantly do it, but like that's the thing with getting into this stuff is you'll yeah. say, and Alan Dulles was this, and there's people out there like, wait, who? And that'll yeah, keep. Yeah, the, yeah. I feel like that's gotta keep accumulating for newbies to a lot of things where it's like don't know their history of like so alan dulles was cia director yes for the first one i believe and he was a wall street lawyer that they picked to head the first sent the central intelligence agency he and his brother his brother john foster dulles was i think secretary of state together they ruled the covert and overt diplomacy for like several decades and they were Wall Street guys. They were lawyers. They worked for a law firm called Sullivan and Cromwell, right? And so among all the other terrible things they did, they overthrew a democratically elected leader in Guatemala in the 50s. This led to essentially a series of right-wing dictatorships in Guatemala, including sort of things, you know, escalated, but including a civil war, which was mostly a genocide of indigenous people. All of this leading to me learning that these people that I was interacting with were like petitioning the government. They were like, yeah, in the 80s, in the 90s, like the government just showed up and killed everyone in the village and we had to like flee. That's why we're here, you know, petitioning to stay. And so like, I was not normally the type of person to like probably fixate on the crimes of the U S government, given my background and upbringing and such. Like I was raised very patriotic. In now, fact. when, yeah. when about were, were you working with um, these Guatemalan immigrants circa? Um, I would say around 2010 2012 okay i'm just trying to get a sense of like the political climate was it the bush years was it so this was obama yes correct for sure and i was generally not very political at that time for sure and just disengaged for the most part uh specifically you know when you're on your two-year thing like well you were doing good works Mm -hmm. i was trying to the other realm Yeah. yeah honestly so that very much like got me like looking and then i was like well if the cia did that what else did they do (laughs) and that just sort of sprawled from there you know to the point where 
now you could I could name a whole bunch of countries and list off a bunch of terrible things that they did, right? Like Yeah. I think now, a lot of people are somewhat aware of that, right? Did you um I don't so I'm trying to think of like, you know, when you're digging into then um, one thing um, Philip Fairbanks and I talk a lot about is how there's so many when you start looking into, OK, this is a legitimate conspiracy thing that happened. Yeah. There's then just like mental honey traps and rabbit holes everywhere that can lead you to flat earth or anti-Semitism yeah. and all these different things. I'm curious if there was any that like you look back and like, oh, I started going down this route. And then I, you know, because what I appreciate about what you do is. I don't know if you're familiar with the work of um, one of the probably the most conspiratorial voices I started paying attention to towards like I think the end of the Bush years and the early Obamas was Michael C. Rupert. And he had like this uh, early uh, newsletter called From the Wilderness. And there's a documentary he had called Collapse. It's black pilled as fuck, uh, you know, because he's just but he's just pointing out like the premise of society, like infinite growth can't happen. But he also is, he's one of the cops that exposed um, that the LAPD uh, was collaborating with the CIA mm. and, and that drugs were being brought in. So he ultimately committed suicide in a way that's kind of almost plausible or, but leaves room for like, maybe who knows, like Hunter Thompson and things like that. Mm. But he, what I appreciate about him and that he would declare about himself that I found to be true is like, well, I'm dealing in conspiracy facts. Yeah. I don't have a theory for you. I'm going to tell you like this thing happened and this thing happened. And there are ways to lie and craft like a consciousness by putting this fact next to that fact. Hmm. But I'm curious. Uh, yeah. How, how you've navigated the realm of like learning about this stuff and where, where it leads you and, and what you've, if there are things you, you know, that led you to being a lot more interested in that, that, were sprung out of that yeah no i hear what you're saying it's interesting because i actually wasn't particularly interested in conspiracy theories for quite a long time i definitely entered all this stuff through just you know outright history and like i like i was like haha alex jones funny funny man like i never watched him didn't really care for coast to coast am like Take your pick. I was not I can tell familiar. You something mm -hmm. interesting about, you know, being, I'm, I'm 44. And, um, so like in the, when I was starting to like pay attention to things, it was the early internet. Like that was my whole career change because I learned HTML and I got a job coding. I was like, cool. My hobby is my job. And I <laughs> shifted and I ended up in like a whole corporate career in like more like marketing and digital advertising and stuff like that. Just being like the cog and the machine that makes websites and things move around. But yeah, the, so the internet was kind of a wild place, you know, like blogs were emergent and then suddenly had a lot of influence on the discourse. I watched Glenn Greenwald arise from Blogspot. Mm. I was, I remember following him in like late 2005 through the blogosphere of a lot of different places, whether it was, and it was a pretty like, you know, like nothing that radical, like daily Co's. It was people yeah. who were like really trying oh, all about so the primary. Um, and um, so, but Glenn Greenwald really attracted me and like where he is now, it's hard. I like, I kind of just like, I tune him out because it's just like, wow. I mean, he is a 
no matter what, always been abrasive with how he responds to people. But I will say like one thing that, you know, there, there's a lot of value. And if you go look at his early work and then his work, um, what was important to it for me was his critiques of um, like, you know, the violations of civil liberties and his critiques of the, you know, war crimes we were committing in Iraq and things like that. They were all like dead on and all the every Democrat and liberal that that became aware of him then was like this fucking guy, what he's saying. Yes. Um, I remember reading him thinking like, man, like, you know, before we had the gift, like the John Oliver nailed him button <laughs> went off. And uh, what was really uh, transformative or, or in, in awakening for me was then watching when Obama became president Glenn Greenwald immediately started becoming more of a pariah because his critiques of the policies were like consistent. Like, well, we're still droning and we're still spying and we haven't convicted any of the war criminals or, you know, any of the lies that happened for this. So um, anyway, like the Internet for me, like I didn't get too much into I followed the news a lot and a lot of blogs. But I remember being exposed to Alex Jones early on and just kind of taking it in and then like Zeitgeist, that whole documentary oh, that yeah. went around. Um, you know what's a funny thing about how I discovered – I remember distinctly how I first came across Alex Jones. I hmm. one day was just like, hey, I want, I want to see if there's a Bill Hicks webpage because I like Bill <laughs> Hicks. I'd liked him since – I was a kid because my parents let me watch HBO way too young. <laughs> and and I, I saw him and Andrew Dice Clay and <clears throat> Dice Clay I liked until I, you know, got older. <laughs> and like Bill Hicks stuck with me when I was much older. And I looked him up and found out that like Alex Jones was someone who kind of attached himself at the hip or was they were both managed by the same guy. And mm-hmm. then sort of they were both in Austin. And so they that's how I learned about Alex Jones. And then it was like, maybe just some obscure websites, probably maybe in the way back machine. I couldn't tell you what it was I found, but then I, you know, saw some more of his stuff. I'm like, Oh, okay. And now there's actually a conspiracy theory that Bill Hicks is Alex Jones. Yeah. And I just think that's, that's crazy. Um, because I see the more likely conspiracy theory is like, well, Alex Jones just looks like exactly what I'm talking about. is just like a trap where he talks about, every conspiracy fact and will mm-hmm. steer you towards who knows what it is and how directly he could be influenced by anybody. But I can see a lot of room for it. And he certainly like the conclusions he would come to. And I'd watch people get more into like, Oh, you need to watch this. And that made me kind of just walk, walk away from conspiracy thinking entirely for a while thinking like, that's not where it's at. It's just making me go to a dark place let me let me ask you a question. Yeah. Do you have do you, do you swear on this show? Oh fuck yeah. Okay. Well, yeah. Alex Jones is a total shit coat, right? I mean, shit coat. Yes. Yeah. That is the term I learned. I think I learned from from you or, or the nexus of shows that come from like digging into this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because apparently there are not very few long term Alex Jones fans. Someone smarter than me wrote a whole thing about how like the average fan will be into Alex Jones for like a couple of years. And then they'll either go back to normal quote unquote, or they'll move farther. Right. But either way, like 
after a certain amount of exposure, you realize the guy's just a clown and what you might go in a couple directions with that, but like just very interesting. Yeah. And I feel like that's, that's the thing where as, um, you know, I, I'm, I've developed my political thinking and, and part of this I remember was influenced by Greenwald because he, um, uh, in, I think an article where he was talking with the, um, who's the gentleman that leaked the Pentagon papers, uh, Edward Ellsberg. El- Den- oh, uh, oh, Daniel Ellsberg. Yeah. I think in an interview with him, they what they came up this uh, psychological study called the Authoritarians, mm-hmm. and um, it was very kind of dry and technical, but it did look at just like how how people's you know in groups and out groups create like this is who you trust, and how people with power can manipulate that trust, and that's where my political access was developing, and I. Just I was just looking at Bush when I was like starting to think about who is am I voting for now that I care about voting, and I guess it's the Democrats because they seem to be more anti-war, and then they're the ones talking about like these common sense economic changes I want, but my political access really started to develop on thinking about authority, not economic sides. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm friends with a lot of Marxists and I know there's a lot of anarchists that get a bad rap out there. But it's like for me, anarchy is just like, well, I can apply it every day and like how I approach being a dad or certainly how I approach journalism, which is the fact that like, well, if you have a lot more power, you have a lot more means and motive and opportunity to lie and cover things <clears throat> up. And I think that's kind of like where I'm finding the utility of at least, you know, because I have, if I have that consciousness, that's what allows me as a journalist to like quite, kind of call bullshit when I see the official story is wrong about something I'm covering or like start to understand the dry ways that they hide the truth. Um, and I recently covered a trial and I was thinking, man, I hope all of these jurors really understand that, yeah, a prosecutor would be lying that hard to you through omissions or arrangement of facts to create. Yeah. Um, because it was a case I knew really well and it did unravel. And thankfully they went with not guilty. But part of that is predicated on like, how much do you trust that authorities aren't up there smiling at you and looking competent, but they're actually monsters. Yeah, no, I really appreciate the general, like, excuse me, the general questioning of authority that uh, anarchists and anarchism uh, entails because most obedience to authority is not particularly warranted and most uh, officials and corporate leaders are absolutely lying. So I definitely appreciate that, especially for journalists like... (laughs) journalists all across the board like should be more questioning than they are i like the work that you've done so like i'm not obviously talking about you but for sure i like that impulse well i noticed that when you're you're talking with some of your guests journalists definitely gets thrown out as a prerogative um but i also get that as so i jumped into this and initially i kind of slapped the name on me as a movement journalist because of what Mm -hmm. i was doing was like well i'm just going to stick close to the bona fide activists because in that first story i had where i called out the shady guy i didn't want to leave someone with pessimism i didn't want them blackpilled on like oh all the protests going on about summer of george floyd are 
a sham or you know it's grifters yeah. and nonsense I, the, so the that's when I connected. Is bad. yeah and so i connected in that first story with our local chapter of uh black lives matter cleveland and mm. they're run by like the cousin of tamir rice and another gentleman who's a guest on um my podcast coming up soon here um because he can talk about his experience as an ex-dealer um in the jail system and now with blm cleveland what they they do all the time is like they're helping people navigate the bail system and they only organize protests if the family wants them to and approves of what they're doing and that's yeah. why i said see these them and yeah. my whole path through journalism has been finding the activists that are completely if not overlooked they're not paid close enough attention to and then getting really great access i mean i'm damn near embedded with blm cleveland as far as like i can they've given me a radical amount of transparency with how they operate yeah. um that i you know i can i can really vouch for them but i'm up against you know like career people who have decided to go into journalism as a career and my best friend in high school ended up doing that. He wanted to do it since he was like a kid, like has cassette tapes of himself making radio shows. <laughs> and in high school had interned at all three stations uh, in Youngstown. And then he went on to, you know, a, a bunch of other places. He's at the weather channel now, but when mm -hmm. I, I get to catch up with him, you know, we'll talk about like the news and the state of things. And he'll talk about his frustration on this and that. And now that I'm a journalist and I'm rubbing it, I'm bumping into stories where um, I do one on this guy, Tony Viola, who was wrongfully prosecuted by this mortgage fraud task force, which I think could use like its whole like team mm -hmm. to go after uh, what that task force really pulled off. But the, the long and short of it is like uh, I put the story out there because I learned about it least two national level journalists and one local journalist who all wanted to cover it but their editors were not letting them mm. and so finally just like this is another thing about like doing the journalism like ah i can now i'm not a crazy person when i tell you stories get suppressed because yeah. i am breaking the stories they won't and prioritizing access to powerless people instead of a lot of these places won't do it because they're like well, locally, like, well, if we piss off the prosecutor's office, they won't tip, tip us off when we're, they're going to raid people for publicity stunts and things like that. Yeah. So, yeah. No, I, I, I really like what you say about just the local thing, right? Because uh, like a lot of people, I really like film noir, right? The movies and the literature, all of it. And when I was younger and I was like a little kid, I always thought it was really just the weirdest thing. I was like, why is it that almost every film noir at the end of the day, when they finally get to the bottom of it is some arcane real estate scam. And it's like, that's because it's real life. Real life is actually just a series of arcane real estate scams that spiral into like complicated murders. <laughs> there is, um, uh, I'm trying to find out more of it and get in touch with, uh, the daughter of this man in Cleveland named Winston Willis. Uh, who his story is he went in <clears throat> won uh, a bunch of money gambling i forget if where it was like atlantic city or vegas but he came back to cleveland and basically bought up a block and mm -hmm. he opened up theaters and shops and all this stuff and it was this you know uh thriving kind of spot that he owned at least you know and it was uh, it was carved out for for a lot of the black community in cleveland 
And then when the Howe riots happened in the 60s, he got arrested for an allegedly bad check that he wrote and locked up for I, I got to get all the details down. But mm-hmm. the arc of the story is locked up, all his properties seized. And that is now the whole strip of like, if you know about Cleveland, like the medical corridor we have, like, you know, we have world famous, like, you know, the Cleveland Clinic as far as like uh, uh, heart stuff like that. And they yeah. they're a real estate force here. But that's another thing where like the Winston Willis story, boom, hits real estate. I'm covering when I did, I did a documentary about the city nearby Euclid, just um, an accidental documentary that happened from looking at one instance of police killing a guy that was just sleeping in his car to finding out, oh, this happened and this happened and this happened. And that the police instigated a riot at a um, roller skating rink called the Playmore. It's black owned. It's black. It's embraced largely by like the black roller skating community and this, the skating community at large. And anyway, they, they, the, you know, I have a whole story of it, how they incited the riot. And then they use it as a pretext to say, we've got to get rid of the Playmore because it's causing all this. And um, I have someone that's helping me kind of look into well, looks like the Playmore might be on uh, part of a real estate footprint that would be really mm, tasty to somebody. On top of it just being an all-white, almost all-white police force, all-white city council, and yeah. a 60% black neighborhood that's, like, occupied. See, that's the part that, like, I am so interested in. Because I think everybody, well, not everybody, but, like, most people understand that there are some systemic issues with police. They might understand some stuff about redlining, but most people don't see the connection to essentially arcane real estate scams that are specifically exploiting often black people. Yeah. No, very interesting. Yeah. And we've, you know, we, I think we learned a bit about that, but that's, that's the kind of thing that, um, keeps coming up and then like i said that other wrongful prosecution story is um part of that you know for me as a journalist because i stumbled upon this as like this guy had his own website freetonyviola.com and he's got his evidence locker and all of this stuff and he's you know trying his best to make product Mm. like okay we'd want a website to go live we'd like to have like an events calendar and a bunch of other things but at a minimum for my podcast website to go live a minimum vial product is the about page and the episodes so I was thinking about like, what's a minimum viable consciousness in your opinion? Yeah, I was looking at that and I was trying to think and uh, that's tough because like, I feel like in some ways the American population such as it is, is already very disengaged politically and I don't necessarily think that like, I mean, they're disengaged from like electoral politics. Right. And so in a certain sense, I feel like most people are already aware that politicians lie. They are aware that none of this really matters to them. So on a certain sense, I feel like they have that part. And then like, in terms of like where to go from here. Well, you know, I would say though that there is something you're skipping over a little bit there with like, we do have this whole 
portion that's disengaged because they see it's like it's a sham, it's a lie, it's a waste of time. But yeah. then I, I, what I worry about a lot, like the side who's really engaged in politics, they believe the Democrats or the Republicans or maybe you know, like, yeah. you know, this other, like, um, and so that's where another, like, those are oftentimes like the level of consciousness, like to get certain Democrats to even think critically on, on a heavy level about, you know, certain presidents, uh, or Republicans and, 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 that that's that's part of the equation too is like yeah no and like i don't necessarily have a lot of prescriptions like right i'm a simple podcasting man um i am pretty uh what would be the term not very optimistic about where electoral politics is headed i think that is pretty fair to say uh, I don't hold a lot of hope for that. So one, you know, it's always since the well before like the fifties and sixties, like getting into local stuff. Like, I don't think that that's ever a bad thing. So like, I know that's a big thing for you and I would not dissuade anyone from becoming more engaged I on would, the local level. I would say you get, what I know is like, you can get a lot more ROI from it and, mm -hmm. For what I'm doing, and I'm a big also evangelist of just like, you should consider citizen journalism, whoever you are, especially if you kind of have this minimum viable consciousness we're talking about, mm -hmm. because there's a lot of stuff going on in your town that your attention can mean a lot. I mean, shit, just showing up to watch public comment on a regular basis and things like that. You'll connect with other people. And if there's, I, I can be, I can allow my mind to go as dark as you, you would say is and and, and, and and see a lot of futility when it comes to engaging with national politics. But if you engage with your local community, like politics can be a vehicle towards that. But if you find out other people who are having problems in your community, that's something that will help you if we are headed towards any sort of a civic collapse. Yeah, no, honestly, like, it, it will never serve you poorly to like know your neighbors, know your general community. Like that's always good. And you were asking me about like reaching normies or whatever. And like, when I think about like lessons I learned, I guess, from like just being like a Mormon missionary, like <laughs> Lord help us. Like just the one thing that came through, it's like, no one ever wants to hear what you have to say unless they like sense basically that you have their best interests at heart. Like you're not selling something. You're not like trying to like tell them bullshit. Like you, and like, if they know that like there's a mutual level of respect and you're not just trying to like clone yourself or, you know, this or that, like most people are, inclined to listen, at least to listen and maybe do a little bit of research if they can feel that like you, you know, care about them. And like, you can't like, it's, it's one of those tough things, right? Because you can't like just invent that you have to actually be genuine. And if you can't feel that, then it's not to say like you should disengage with doing work, but like you should try to actually within yourself like 
care about other people before you care about whatever either political or conspiratorial thing you're talking about. That's my two cents at least. Yes. And that's where I, yeah, I say like it, it, it's even if you aren't someone who falls into the wrong rabbit hole or gets stuck Mm -hmm. in the the wrong honey trap or starts uh, eating the ice cream that's shit coated. (laughs) Um, And you're looking at all the right information and it can be, I know that like most people, that's what they have to do is just advertise anchor. Well, I made it about 33 seconds so that people could just click play, click skip and I made it like pretty easy for them to do that. Um, just that way, you know, you can leave it playing. It, I don't care either way, you know. But <laughs> no, for sure. Like, where I've sorry, I lost the thread. No, that's <laughs> the, my question. My question. I was just wondering. You know, you you started your podcast. You decided like, well all of this stuff is either fascinating or agitating enough to me that I'd like to put it out there. Uh, what were, were your aspirations for it? Um, and, and how, what do you think about where you, where you've come to right now and where, where you think it's going? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think it's funny you point out the anchor ad because that is specifically what was in my head was, uh, like, I won't be too specific, but there were a couple think shows I would listen to and I would just be like, this is incredibly lazy. Like a lot of podcasts, like separate from like a lot of the political ones, like a lot of the ones that would like just do research or history or something would essentially be reading Wikipedia or a single article. And you'd be lucky if they even cite the article, like no books ever read, like just, the most surface level shit. And I, I was just like, I know more like not to be like vain or whatever. I just like, I know more than like some of these shows. I'll like, I'll just make the show that I would want to hear. And that has proved to be a winning formula, I guess, is I do topics on things that I would want to hear. If I were looking through a show, just like you said, watching like, you know, if I'm at work or going on a, doing chores and I'm just like, Oh, I want to hear about this. That's the topic I would pick to like do a podcast on. I feel like that's, I started out doing a podcast, um, not, not feeling like I was a, an authority on things Yeah. though. Um, you know, I have consumed a lot of different things, but I'm, I, you know, arriving at a point of certainty where I can say, you y'all need to hear me on this. Like you need to hear it. But initially with podcasting, I was, I had that with just all the grassroots musicians I've known through Mm -hmm. being someone who goes and plays at open mics and being like, look at all this overlooked talent. Um, Though now my very first guest, my prototype uh, that I podcast interviewed uh, is Charlie Crockett, who actually nicknamed me BZ and he's now exploding. So I hope that for everybody on my, you know, my hope is that, you know, someday I achieve like, you know, a decent sized audience. They do the thing I do is go back and listen to everything and get into every single musician, author, or, you know, like anybody I've highlighted because that's been, that was the point of the show at the beginning was just sort of, um, 
I know I've sought out and, you know, and found a lot of incredible just grassroots stuff or had experiences, like I said, Occupy Wall Street. And eventually, you know, then the podcast became more like journalism and following on that track. But discovering you and Phil has sort of put me on taking a little tangent from like the more like local stuff I've been focused on, uh, whether it's music or local corruption and things like that. But I sense there's a real um, community uh, around, you know, a lot of people who are, are analyzing this stuff in, in the way you are. Um is there anything like that you've been exposed to, like because you started podcasting that you learned about through, you know, your audience or, or other shows? Yeah, no, I definitely think that there's like a, a lot, like there's definitely a community that is really fun. Uh, a lot of us are on Twitter and sort of like, I think, for me anyway, a lot of it was around the Subliminal Jihad podcast. And a lot of the friends that I've made have been through their like Discord group and like the just them on Twitter. So like for sure. Like it's like informally sort of like the tinfoil left, such as it is, where it's like people who are left wing in some persuasion but aren't like huge rubes about the fact that like there are spies there are informants there are like snitches like there are just you know feds like (laughs) these things exist like things are sus as they say so like just i think it's really powerful to pair that with like left-wing politics and like in some ways yeah like I'm not necessarily doing politics right with my show. Like I have respect for people who do that. And I, especially stuff like what you do and like journalists who are actually doing that stuff. Like for me, it's mostly my show's mostly entertainment, you know, history. Right. But like, like, I do think that fusing just, yeah, like left-wing politics with like a certain savviness about how power actually operates, that's what's missing, you know? But whether you want to say in Occupy or with Bernie, in both cases, like there just wasn't enough grappling with like who has power, how do they exercise power through a lot of unsavory means, right? Yeah. And, and that's why it's, like I said, been a long process of, of sort mm-hmm. of exhaustion looking at like, where's the usefulness of, of our attention and dealing with this system and why no matter what we should do, um, uh, calling out the abuses of power is good <laughs> and yeah. I appreciate anyone that's doing it. It has been in it, but it's been really wild discovering you. Um, and then a lot of these other podcasts and some of them in like, this ecosystem of, like you said, uh, the the threaderati of the <laughs> of the tinfoil left and the ins- like these I won't call them insane, but they're mind blowing threads yeah. about different topics. Um, you know, where where do you um, where do you what are your metrics for veracity and like how you're judging a source? And I know you've spoke. Do you want to speak a bit about like how you will take different sources and where you put in grains of salt. Yeah, for sure. And I know that we definitely have 
different probably requirements because you're a journalist, right? And like you were also reporting on like more or less recent things, like within the past 10 years at least. And like I typically deal with things that are like typically at least 20 years old. And you know what? I, I absolutely yeah. respect about you because it's something that I have just become done with, especially since mm-hmm. doing this work is um, I don't want to have takes. Mm-hmm. I want to bring new information. Yes. So yeah. I love that you bring information and you don't just have takes. And when you do, they're very well declared and still sober. And and I don't know if at the top of this, I will say this, but I will say it now. Like you absolutely to me are the Stephen Wright of conspiracy podcasting because you have the same dry delivery and <laughs> just, uh, you know, your voice is, um, I'm glad I get to see your face and put to face to the voice. Has anyone said that you have a unique voice? Does that come um, up I, in any of Yeah, I think people say that there, there's a unique, that I have a unique voice. Yeah. And you know, it's funny. It's, I said that to you because I joked with um, Phil and, and another friend of mine about like, um, I hope to see see his face just because so that it like it makes his, your voice kind of make sense in my head because I've never heard a voice like that. Yeah. Um, and you know who it's, you sound like someone doing like, like you could be doing an Elizabeth Holmes thing. <laughs> this this gets into like the uh i wanted to talk to you a bit about you know the anonymity and your cheeky jimmy Fallon yeah, yeah. name um but i was joking about um and you, you'll appreciate kind of this this weird tangent my brain went on is the thing about someone like doing what elizabeth holmes was like let's say so this is how i've been talking to you for the last hour i'm bc douglas and this is my voice at any <laughs> point are you gonna like say hey do you actually talk like that and (laughs) you probably won't right yeah and no one did that to her and every time they didn't do that to her they were already accepting a lie it was it occurred to me like that is like a weird fucked up form of like magic which is another uh twist on a topic that i've been introduced to through your tinfoil left Mm -hmm. uh, uh potosphere but uh, I was thinking about, yeah, Elizabeth Holmes, like that doing some, if someone was just like, I'm making a different voice all the time and you're accepting it, you don't even know you've already bought a lie from me. No, I think that's very insightful because like everyone has commented on it. Everybody knew she was doing a voice like there's countless examples of her accidentally slipping. Everybody knew it was a lie. So like you're right, it was really setting the tone for a level of unreality. That's very interesting. Yeah. It's a subtle <laughs> form of uh, hypnosis, which I think was the first like mind blowing thing. Do you want to like, uh, this wasn't on my list, but if there's mm-hmm. any sort of like greatest hits of <laughs> what you cover in your podcast, that was definitely one I had never heard of. Uh, yeah. Uh, for, for which thing or so the, the Hitler and hypnosis. Oh yeah. And, and, and like, uh, to whatever like short degree you can recap that for mm-hmm. someone who isn't clear and like where, you know, that's a good example of a story where it's like, okay, what did you look at to consider what's, what's true here and what's not, but you know, yeah. at least knowing this is worthwhile to consider this, like where's the value in, in what you bring in, in that story. So I was, okay. So COVID hit, right. 
And I had actually been laid off. You know, it's it's fine. I hated that job, whatever. But I had, you know, as I was looking for a new job and I was, you know, getting unemployment and generally just like <laughs> recovering from how awful that job was, I, and I've always been a huge reader and I was reading in particular, I think it was the Rise and Fall of the Third Reich. And not for any particular reason, just, I let, you know, whatever, I was reading it. And it's, it's a fine book. There are some issues with it, but like, it's overall, it's like a good popular history, right? And like, I was just listening to this general, straightforward popular history. And they mentioned something about the fact that like, Hitler had been hypnotized. And I was like, wait, what? I had never heard that. And so like, I was like, okay, well, let me look into that just a little bit. And like, the more I kept looking, the, the more and more weird stuff I kept finding. And like, it wasn't just that he had been hypnotized. And for your listeners, basically, Adolf Hitler fought in World War One. He was gassed you know, horrible trench warfare, like, but the thing is he was blinded and with how chemical warfare worked, if you were blinded, your sight would not come back. Your eyes were just like burned out. There's no coming back from that. But Hitler recovered, which means he had hysterical blindness, which, you know, that's probably a valid response to trauma. I'm not trying to like say he was bad for getting shell shock essentially, but like the way he recovered was that he was hypnotized. <laughs> and that part is just indisputably true. There's a lot of records of like, he was sent to a specific clinic that didn't, you know, there's a lot of proof, but like then we got to this interesting point where there were specific accounts of Hitler being hypnotized, but they were told in this novel. But this novel was written by a guy who supposedly had been given Hitler's medical file. So then you're in this interesting world of like novels revealing possibly truth through a fictionalized form. Like, you start to enter this interesting world and then like you start to track or I started to track like the story of like Hitler's medical file. There were several copies who got different copies. Oh, they, the Nazi party was actually killing people to get a hold of these different copies. Like suddenly the story was just like spiraling out of control. And I was just like, okay, like I kind of thought about doing a podcast. I could just like talk about all this stuff I was finding. You know, that was, I think, the thing that tipped me over to becoming a Patreon supporter was to unlock uh, the novels as Spycraft series. Mm -hmm. that, that's been fascinating to take in so far, if you want to survey some of that. Yeah, no, I go through several different authors. I think maybe the one I'm most proud of was the J.D. Salinger episode, because I think a lot of people have read J.D. Salinger. He's... I really like his fiction. Like, I'm not going to, even now, knowing what I know about J.D. Salinger, I still like his work. 
but there are some twists and turns in the JD Salinger story that like are truly, truly staggering. Like I can't even like, it's crazy. Well, I, like, I will say yeah. this. Yeah. Someone def- check out your episode. And um, there's a podcast that I remember listening to. I randomly stumbled across and gave it a shot. It was called the thread. Mm. And it starts like, somewhere where like jd salinger is like the third episode and it keeps going back to like the person who was his father and like will randomly hop around different things and some of the yeah some of what you touched upon was in that but um yeah that was all really surprising yeah and that's the other thing like i read like four books to do the jd salinger episode like if if, it, if this weren't also a labor of love, it's like, I'm not making that much money when you add up, like, all of the hours I spend on it. But, like, no, it's like. No, it's, and I, I imagine yeah. you're, you're I mean, you're probably experienced. Yeah, I mean, I'm with uh, the Wire podcast that we're debuting, like, the season mm-hmm. one, episode one of tomorrow started out as just a labor of love. And uh, it's funny because it was during recording the intro last night that it landed on me. I'm like, oh, so we just like jumped in like, I like The Wire. You like The Wire. Let's do a podcast about all the episodes. So that's two and a half or three years of our lives. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. If we're releasing on what's already a pretty tight schedule of two, one every two weeks. But I know that's crazy. It's really fun you know, as far as this kind of dovetails into like what you're doing with literature is spycraft. And I wouldn't mm-hmm. say the wire is spycraft, but, um, to approach a, a, you know, something like that and look at where, where did it hit right? Where did it, um, overlook things? Where has it aged well or poorly? And it brings up so many things that are worth talking about that, Baltimore yeah. has many lessons for, you know, my city of Cleveland and I think any city and the process of I'm sure what you discover starting a podcast that I learned when I started my first one. And it's just as true with the wire one is the process of like deciding who you want to book for guests where you're like, oh, I've read your book. I want to talk to you about it. It's really great. Yeah, no, I really love the just having a show as an excuse to just get to talk to people like I'll never get tired of that. Like, cause it's like, it's nice. It provides an excuse. And then like, you get to talk to like a wide range of people who like, aren't just like doing the same thing you're doing necessarily. Yeah. And I, I, and I sorry, I do like the wire too specifically. Cause it does feel like you're reading a book in some ways. It's a very dense show. It's been said many times. It's like the first attempt to really adapt a novel to the screen. And yeah, yeah the density is definitely there. And, and it's, like I said, been beyond booking guests. It's really been amazing to peck through it and watch it with a real eye towards like detail. And, and uh, now as a journalist who's covering some of this world, like seeing like having totally different perspectives on it, the, you know, however many nth times around it is for me at this point. But yeah, yeah, the job is like, we have to watch the episode at least once, probably twice, take notes, record the episode and then talk about it. And then, yeah, but we're hopefully settling into our production flow now. And if we get Patreon support for that, we're excited to do a lot of bonus content into the, like the Simon verse. Uh, This worked out well where we're 
we're putting this out right before his new series, um, We Own This City, comes out, which stars a lot of the same cast. Hmm. Yeah, no, and like <laughs> David Simon is for sure one of those guys who's <laughs> just shouldn't be on Twitter. He just oh, shouldn't God. be. Yeah, he, he posted some uh, photo of himself wearing this T-shirt with a, the, the, the Avon quote about only two days in, in jail. And then on the back it says, fuck Putin. Because some, some – it's like, dude. Yeah, this is the, so the show is like – it's interesting to do – we're doing a podcast about The Wire. Not to turn this into a thing about my podcast, but it's not – it's not like a fanboy show about David Simon and the wire. It's using it mm-hmm. as a means to talk about a lot of systemic shit um, and street level stuff and find guests with authentic experiences that, pro- you know, differ from uh, Simon's and sometimes validate it. Yeah. But no matter what, we do have a lot of affection for the craft of the show. Um, that being said, uh, oh, one other thing, you know, uh, that, I, I just wanted to like throw all sorts of recommendations at you. And I think I already have on Twitter a lot once you started, like we had back and forth going, mm-hmm. but um, I just started watching uh, the FX show. It's on Hulu called snowfall. I've, I've been curious about that. It's amazing. Like wire level and everything with like, it's this uh, for those who uh, don't know anything about it. Um, it is basically showing the ground level nuts and bolts i think fictionalized i gotta look up more about who's writing this and what their source material is but it's directed and, and put in motion by john singleton of boys in the hood and it gets into the the ground level of the cia bringing cocaine into la in order to fund the contras um right about like 1980 you know early 80s and um so you you have uh characters that are like this up and coming new dealer, various distributors, different, you know, Latino gangs, and then the CIA agent and how he operates and all that is very fascinating. So I definitely think that is worth your time to take in. Mm -hmm. No, for sure. I've been definitely interested in that one. And the soundtrack kills, man. I get the, I get the playlist for that. Just going on a loop. Um, Oh yeah. So, uh, yeah, do you have any um, difficulty, like, or actually, I want to circle back. We didn't finish this. I wanted to talk about mm-hmm. anonymity and um, yeah. why why you're hanging, you know, like, how you're hanging on to that. And that was, like, a conscious choice. And, um, you know, I, 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 I wrote to you in an email before this about how I would find that really comforting because it, it does freak me out um to go into this position where I, i'll write challenging stuff about police chiefs and prosecutors who are just a city over from me and i'm writing about dirty dirty shit they do um mm-hmm. with the cover of law and systemic protection and um not being a big journalist you know just wondering like you know how easy it is for you know different ways for nefarious forces to just fuck your life up you know car crashes, whatever, you know, I live in a certain bubble of paranoia that comes from doing this work, um, that I have to keep my sanity through. But, um, yeah, I just want to know if you want to talk a bit about like how you're maintaining your anonymity and and why that's precious to you. 
Yeah, for sure. I would say, I mean, like, I admire the work you're doing because you are under the gun in a way that I'm absolutely not. So, like, you know, hats off to that. I would say that, like, first of all, my name, what I clearly wasn't intending to, like, start a show or start a personal brand because I would have picked something way less stupid. It's so like great. Was, it's so great. No, stop having, I've heard you express those doubts in other interviews and uh, <laughs> embrace it. You love it. It's excellent. I mean, I did kind of have in the back of my head, someone like Joey shithead, like sort of like a punk name, but like with a little bit more of a parapolitical overtone. But also I thought the pun was funny. Like there really wasn't that much thought that went into it. But like, I'd say just like, the anonymity thing is like just a general disposition that I have. It's not necessary. It's, I wouldn't say it's like an, like an affect in the way that like one of my favorite authors, Thomas Pinchon famously reclusive, doesn't really do media appearances, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Like for me, this is just a general posture of like, I make it slightly difficult for random internet people who might have a grudge to like try to fuck my life up by like i don't know telling my employer that i have a conspiracy theory podcast like yeah it's like so i make it very difficult for that level (laughs) but like i don't really think that like i'm under the gun for anything serious well it's Right. Any if you're if you're doing so here's the thing that like you know finally I think I knew this before I started becoming a journalist and then it really landed on me but you know when I people would kind of like I said I was very agitated by seeing the types of civil liberties violations that were happening under Bush like NSA spying yeah. and people uh, and then that carried on and the Snowden revelations happened under Obama and that was another thing where I just saw all the Democrats were like Snowden's a Republican and they couldn't accept that you know they whatever but there was ultimately a this is fine you know i can live with it and i always saw that like well yeah you don't have anything to worry about because you're not a threat and i don't really worry about posting my facebook statuses raging about the war or what's happening or sharing articles but once you become efficacious once you become a journalist or yeah a podcast that is raising consciousness which is what I, I would call the work you're doing about mm-hmm. certain issues and, and revealing um, important histories that are not um, widely known. Yeah. And like, I would just say that like in general, most like the average person should be more paranoid and perhaps more guarded about their secrets the things they post online like all of these things like everyone should be a little bit more security minded not to say that what like your stance of just like i'm all out here you know exposed but this is who i am i think you in some ways have to as a journalist and like yeah either way i respect it but like i kind of feel like the average person should probably be more secret online in some ways sure Oh, I think so. Absolutely. But I'm saying like Mm -hmm. the, the reason for that too only goes up the more that you decide to engage, uh, whether it's, you're going to join a, you're going to try and make a political party better and back candidates, or you're going to do journalism, or you're going to do a podcast that tries to coherently explain 
systemic corruption. Uh, God help us engage in any sort of direct action. Like, yeah, you just shouldn't be like talking about it online and you should be weirded out by the people who are. And like, I'm not trying to be like some holier than thou Maoist or whatever, but it's like just streaming for hours and hours and giving your takes on things that you haven't really researched is the exact opposite of like Mao's dictum, no investigation, no right to speak. Like, sure, maybe that's not always the best advice in every situation, but like more often than not, if you haven't looked into something, you shouldn't be talking about it. And like, I believe it or not, I I know it's hard to believe like a podcaster does that. Like if I haven't looked at something, I will try to refrain from having a take on it. That's just called being, I guess an adult maybe, or like wise in any sense. Like it's just, it's the, they're doing the opposite of what you should be doing. If you're halfway serious about politics. And that's, my my uh, another axis that has emerged now in like recent years, like I said, authority and how how people grant it and how it's abused became an axis for me early on in my political development. And now another one is the axis to which I see uh, certainty or curiosity from somebody. Um, and a lot of times people like, you know, in the ideological spectrums, whether they're communist or libertarian or republic, they, they develop this certainty that they've, yeah. they've found the, the team to get behind and the curiosity stops. Yeah. Uh, and I'm someone who kind of like what you're saying as far as Mao's dictum, um, I only develop the kind of certainty to like get on a podcast or anything and say, let me tell you about this thing. When yeah. I have researched the hell out of it, like if you want to know yes. about the death of the night Luke Stewart died in Euclid, I will walk you through that, and I will with certainty and disgust. Yeah. Um, but I won't just get up and and have sort of the grandiose takes about police or something like that. That I know more somewhere in my heart could be articulated, but it's just not what yeah. I feel like making my platform about. Very much now that I'm in journalism, when I before I did that. I was all about like my hottest, my biggest uh, thread on Twitter ever was a never Biden rant I had right about when I realized that, that Bernie has done the second time. And it, it's, it was insane how many people like just resonated with that. And I just sat there. I'm like this and this and this and this, and this doesn't get better. And we haven't addressed anything about this and what the, and I was just sick of it. And that was the last time I felt like I used social media just for like, I'm going to have a big take. And now since doing journalism, like I said, I also, you know what I really like about it? I'm not drinking from the fire hose anymore of bad news happening everywhere. Yeah. When I'm getting into a story like, Oh, I got to research this thing deeply. People tell me like, you know, Oh, did you hear about Chris rock? Or I guess like, you know, I pass a TV or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. No, like it is really nice to be a certain level of disengaged, not completely, but like, like it's like you kind of accidentally found this sweet spot where you're like only half hearing. So it's not like red alarm sirens all the time for like this and this and this. I have a relative who never got off of Facebook. So this person is still has been on Facebook for like over a decade and like their brain is just completely melted from like constant hot takes and 
alarm sirens from like everything not I'm, just national I'm still news on it but it's just yeah, mostly so grandma can see things move. yeah it's almost it's almost just you out of like uh yeah I, but then I'm, i also have fatigue about realizing like well a lot of people have gone to instagram and they're all tiktoks just still kind of emerging and i guess i should go there but i'm i am feeling my age where i'm like i came up in the days of geocities and angel fire and making my first website with AOL free accounts. Yeah. Uh, so I've, I watched, I watched MySpace come and go. I had a Friendster mm-hmm. account. Um, I don't know why, why I keep Facebook around, it's, but it's definitely out of like the laziness and knowing there are some people I would like to keep in touch with that are still on there. Exactly. Right, you got to just get their phone numbers at some point and be done with this, the fucking Zucker bots. Yeah, it would make <laughs> it would be nice to have one less oligarch for once, but I, I'm sure. Well, I guess they acquired Instagram, right? Is that is yeah? That the case? So, like, I guess he's not going anywhere. No, you know what's really, really disturbing? If you want to, like, um, it, you know, it's one of the many things where I'm like, man, if I were, you know, going to dig into a thing, it's the shady stuff that's going on with like funding journalism. Apparently, in the mm. Build Back Better bill. There's uh there's provisions that get like all this reimbursement to news organization news organizations if they employ local reporters. So mm-hmm. we have in Cleveland uh just brand new outfit popping up called like um uh the Association of the AJP or something. I'll, it doesn't matter, but it's like it's it's coming out of nowhere all these big not this web of nonprofit money um and on the even worse thing that social media is like facebook has a journalism program like there's local <laughs> outlets in your town that have attended seminars and are are lusting after like awards for meta journalism things or like they're they're winning them and they're they're being like oh we won this award from meta and like they're establishing themselves now as an actual journalist like hiring people to teach journalists and that is disturbing as hell oh yeah no that's (laughs) that's disturbing so that's that's definitely a reason why going into journalism learning it by doing it and doing it in the the way that um, I recently learned about a theory of um, and practice of journalism called emancipatory journalism. Which, when mm-hmm. I read about it, I was like, "Oh, that's that's the thing that 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 pretty much sounds like what I like that." Um, but it needs a Wikipedia page. I'll say that I have all these books, and I realize there's no Wikipedia page for it. Um, <laughs> but th- I don't know where I'd find a home, and I'd really hate for the stories I have in my queue and backlog and, and longer run. And I want to do more work with the documentary series. Um, it really feels like going like the Patreon small user supported route is, is the way to, to make that happen. Um, despite the fact that, you know, I'm not opposed to learning from being around good journalists and I have made good contacts who mentor me. Uh, but what has the experience been for you? It seems like you're, in the time I've watched you, you, I've seen some serious growth on like your Patreon, like when you put that out there and did you set out at the beginning with like, okay, I'll put a Patreon up and this is the discipline I'll adopt for it. Or was it until you actually got supporters? You're like, Oh, I I'm kind of on the hook to make it worth their money. 
Yeah, it's funny because I initially just started the Patreon just so that I could like essentially because like I've always just bought tons and tons of books. And so like I just wanted to like pay for books basically. (laughs) And I wasn't anticipating having nearly as big of an audience as I ended up with. And so like that's been really cool. Um, I mean, I definitely think that like the Patreon podcast model, like that other people have established, like there's already like a built-in model, you know, I didn't really have to reinvent the wheel, but now it's been fun. Like just like, I make this thing that I enjoy other people enjoy it. It's great. But like, I feel for you more because like in the old days, your natural place would have been like a radical newspaper, either attached to an org or a school or a union. And we don't really have any of those, right? Are you aware of this book? Uh, No, I am not. A Man in His Time, or the journalist John L. Spivak. Mm -hmm. So this is on archive.org, but a good friend of mine, the one who told me about you, um, and it's actually my source on the first story, sent this to me. So it opens in New Haven in 1914, right at the beginning of World War One, And mm. this journalist was very much, you know, part of like the kind of got close to like the socialist movement. But then he's talking about how like the culture of the time in New Haven was they, they had the, the green where people would put up folding chairs and they'd talk about like, I'm here to tell you about communism. Let me tell you why <laughs> communism is great. The workers of the world are going to reunite and blah, blah, blah. And some people get them talk about anarchism and all that. There's all mm-hmm. this going on and then he like in the very first page he sets that setting and then starts to talk about how like then the war came mm-hmm. and and how all of that changed in discussions and if i just go through like some of the things like in like the he's covered um the smedley butler the business the business plot oh, yeah yeah, oh, yeah. He, he covered the business plot he covered um chain gangs in southern georgia um and it's 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 another instance of just like why don't I know about this guy? And apparently later on he's accused of uh, being a, a a a communist spy, and we we can't trust. And, and that seeing that now, and I was just telling my wife today when you know she's not like disengaged from the news, but far from it. But she doesn't follow what I follow, and I am very deliberately. She will just go downstairs in the morning and put on the like the the Google and be like, "Hey Google, tell me the news." And it plays this survey of things from Democracy Now and mm-hmm. other stuff. And I'm just like, I'm more like selectively curate what I want to know about. But in the current state with the war, it's just crazy to think about like all the things that are just said and then we don't know and in, in the fog that we're in right now. Yeah, and what is really frustrating is that, like, every particular lie that someone might hear, there will, like, someone somewhere is going to fact check and talk and disprove it years from now, but the people who heard it will never, ever hear that that was actually not true. Yeah, and I, from the moment, you know, I very clearly remember when Russiagate started as a narrative, I remember it starting on smaller news outlets that were that were calling out like this. This all may be like Russia um, and Feder and bubbling up and becoming like you know. Then it was the official line, but it was all started when 
the DNC emails got out. And because of that, that became the story more than the contents of those emails. And then we just kept leaning on it. Um, And all I could see was the normies in my neighborhood who were like good, which is a very like liberal, you know, it's like around like Shaker Heights, which is, you know, like I guess a lot of people know of Shaker Heights and, and they're all pride themselves on like being diverse and liberal and progressive. Um, But around like Halloween, like first year into Trump, like people are wearing like Russian hats and things like that with satirical things about how he's, they're controlling Trump. Um, and everyone, I feel like psychologically that narrative was, you know, a lot of people were ready to embrace that. It's like, this isn't America. That's the only way we could have Trump. It's the fault yeah. not in our stars. Exactly. There's always an external enemy to scapegoat basically. And it's like, oh, cool. So it's definitely the country that has what, like the GDP of Texas that like, Yes. I mean, like they've been a geopolitical rival, but it's like, (laughs) like it's a bit of a tail wagging the dog to say that like the Russians control Trump rather than, you know, frankly, more likely the other way around, honestly. Yeah. Not to say that Trump couldn't have been very easily controlled by any intelligence agency. If you want to talk about like who would probably be comparable, you know, everybody, all the liberals would talk about how, they were sure there are a lot of them that were very sure there were P tapes or compromise. Um, fine. I, but I, it's I more can't. likely that people over here have that and are wielding it over Trump to make him be how they need him to be much more likely. And I also love the just, well, now it's yeah, just the like tactic of just taking a word and then saying the Russian word that's a cognate. So it's like, disinformation and it's like just like disinformation dipshit like it's not like the russians invented the idea of disinformation or like you know opposition files on people like come on (laughs) and and that's where i'm not i'm of course like people would argue with me you know it's a funny moment i had at my high school reunion in like november is a just girl i didn't know much when we were in high school and we're growing up now. I'm like, Oh yeah, you and this, we're just having this casual thing. And she's like, I've followed your Facebook post for years. And I used to think you were fucking crazy. <laughs> Cause I would just rail about like how bad, like, you know, things that like people she thought were fine were, um, and, or things were really corrupt. And she's like, now I'm like, I'm finally starting to see it. Um, because yeah, it, the, the overall, um, I guess, takeaway of like where where we're at is is figuring out who we can trust and getting into a shared space of understanding like um, how we get out of this. And we keep getting presented with like there's this good faith effort that needs to be put into our system to make it work properly. It's just not there yet. And we're not reckoning with the fact that there's very – awful, powerful, fascistic, dominating personalities, uh, you know, whether it's neo-feudalism or uh, neo-fascism or good old-fashioned fascism or something new are subverting um, 
doing what uh, getting back to like yeah I mentioned uh, Lance DeHaver Smith's lecture on conspiracy theory and the origin of that term he has mm-hmm. a fantastic antidote a phrase for like, let's say what they actually are state crimes against democracy yeah and not always state but always as far as initiating things but frequently you need the state to pull it off yeah no like it kind of makes me think like anyone who's listening to this has probably interacted with like i get that's a popular term like a toxic person like some sort of like narcissistic or manipulative abuser abuser type person whether a boss or a partner or even a friend and that is essentially what the corporate and government state that we have in this country is and the natural response essentially is to be distant on guard keep your guard up and like we can't get to a point where we have trust in our institutions until they actually reform in any meaningful way and until that point the only natural response to help from getting hurt more is this sense of paranoia and so like people do need to be more paranoid both uh, like their local and national and, you know, institutions until there's more reform. Like that is just, I think a natural response. And it's, it's, it's a, it's a difficult situation too. It's because you, you know, one thing that I thought I kept, one thing about going into like, you know, like being all in for Bernie that when I walking away from that realized you know was it stupid or naive to even think like what if we had gotten him elected like now i'd certainly be like well there's all sorts of ways he could you know be taken out through like you know the worst kind of conspiracy uh fiction you could imagine but there's also just the fact that all of the powers that be that didn't want him there would have coalesced to completely destroy his agenda and thinking like well so the top down that's not where it's at maybe going and starting at the bottom at the local level there's more of a chance and it's really crazy to see how entrenched power machines are even at that level right now and how you get around that if you're like you know so few people want to go in as much as i've cared about politics i've never been someone who considered like oh i'll run for a thing um because you know, I, that's why I said I like this niche of like I can criticize things as a journalist and dig in. And I tell my kids, well, Daddy finds liars. <laughs> <laughs> well, also, we don't have to like kid ourselves that either of us ever could have been running for anything anyway, because like we're not rich and we've never jacked off in a coffin. So we're <laughs> not ever going to be in the positions of power that matter anyway. <laughs> you know, like we're just not in the club. Like, yeah, I'm not even in the country club, much less the the real clubs, you know, I'm one of the, the wildest experiences I've had as a journalist was actually a Facebook message came to me out of the blue from uh, well, it said, I'm a city councilor at this nearby city. Um, we there was a, a police shooting on this date and councils tried to cover up what actually happened will you help me expose it that's cool um 
there's even yeah even weirder and, and then like yeah just when people start reaching out and you want to help and realizing like my first question is always like have you told this to anyone else a lot of times they have and just don't get mm-hmm. any answer and i'm too busy to work on it but at least feels good to always be like well i can't work on your story but i'll keep me in the loop yeah. a lot of the process of it is like you know if there's no book written about a story and you're talking to the person who went through it when they tell you about it it's so messy in their heads it doesn't happen linearly it might mm-hmm. be like well i was arrested on this date and then on the date i was arrested but they didn't find out about like five years later this earlier this other thing had happened so part of the work is sort of processing like with people like um certainly get them to trust you but then like helping them develop what's the coherent narrative of yeah see that's what's so interesting to me because like i do that with like broad history you know but it's fundamentally the same thing where it's like you have all of these like you know stochastic like random events and then you kind of have to like form them into a narrative and like sometimes you could like form it into the wrong narrative but like you like the you are making the meaning but like the meaning was there all along too it just needed to be interpreted mm-hmm. it's very interesting yeah and well and then like the that's where like <clears throat> just getting things down to once you you have to know all the things that happened and then you can build yeah. a timeline and that's usually and the the most um the thing i learned about like my, the writing style that came out of from my very first story which with the 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 Tamir Rice grifter mm-hmm. pissed me off really pissed me off but i wrote that in a way that was just like i'm going to tell you everything i learned kind of matter factly and dryly you should feel pretty pissed at the end of this yeah, and I found that's a good way to operate, and and or even if it's creating like, I don't have to put a conspiracy theory in your head with say the Tony Viola case. If I tell you like, well, this task force prosecuted him on the federal level, and then a whistleblower that worked with the task force came forward in between his that and his state trial, told him all the evidence that they hid, and gave him everything he needed to defeat all forty X counts in state. He did that. She was going to testify and expose everyone in the task force and what they, how they were operating. Um, oops, but she was found dead of alcohol poisoning the day she was supposed to testify. Like my, 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 my eight-year-old kid heard that story. I was like, Dad, you know what I think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I started to turn, I started to flip it on people, like, you know, with a story like that. I'm like, look, and if you want to be a coincidence theorist, there's room for that. Mm-hmm. Exactly. But like the preponderance of evidence tends to point towards a certain direction and not to go back to the Sophie thing. But like, if you look at the preponderance of evidence for say the JFK thing, you might be inclined to see a conspiracy or you might be a sucker who's been, like taught by your schools and institutions to obey the like informal party line and say, no, actually the government got it right on this particular occasion. Yeah. And I don't know if that just gets to ultimately like 
there's a comfort I think everybody seeks in some sort of authority. Like whether it's you, you had a good dad, you have a dad that can, you can go to for good advice, or you had you have a church that isn't like toxic and abusive to its congregation or anyway, or like you know, like whatever. It's just good people in it, and you trust them. And um, but then the, you know we have on a macro level the we want this comfort of like the system we're in now is is basically good and, and we can keep getting by with it but fundamentally there's been such a what what i think is the the thing i take away from taking in all of the the hidden and and the obscured history of the state crimes against democracy is like i said we're like not living in reality and we're not living with a true understanding of 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 how how much um, our good efforts can be stomped out because we've never just fully reckoned. Like if, if, if there was just a, everything that's a, a fact was just widely known. That's taught in schools. Very mm-hmm. like as a, as a, as like a, a, an act of contrition. Yeah. Um, you know, the truth and reconciliation that yes. needs to happen in this country for Again, atrocity after atrocity after atrocity after atrocity that was done domestically or across the pond. People don't know the history of what's been done in their names and to themselves. Yes. And like people like other countries have done truth and reconciliation commissions to just lay out, okay, we had a civil war. Here's what happened. Like that gets you so much farther but we have never had that for one of all of the many incidents that you and I could both probably go through and list off. Yeah. Getting, you know, getting to one of those truths uh, that I recently became aware of was the extent I had always heard that there was a lot of soldiers who fragged uh, their commanding officers in Vietnam. But uh, I think through like, some of the, the, the Twitter sphere you're in, I came mm-hmm. across someone who wrote, who had all this, this great thread about, well, no, actually the army was on the point where like, we need to wrap this war up because the army's going to collapse because there's like, co- like very like deliberate, like, yeah, we're all just going to kill our commanding officers. There was an epidemic of it. And I was really yeah. uh, blown away to find out that um, like full metal jacket um, the, the, he wears the peace symbol on his on his helmet, the Matthew Modine character, ironically, and that was a real thing in Vietnam because soldiers were like signaling to the Viet Cong, "We're done, we're we're out," and that there was a Colonel Kurtz, like Apocalypse Now, but he w- wasn't didn't go mad thinking we need to like completely put our stomp our feet and murder go you know crazy and kill everyone he told his soldiers put their guns down and help with the harvest yeah and like like they're like like things were so bad that they were almost at the point of a civil war within the military itself like it was remarkable and like north vietnamese forces like would frequently learn english phrases like particularly very effective with like black troops where they'd be like, why are you fighting us? Like we're not the enemy. Like, and that was very effective because yeah, all these guys were drafted and the only person who actually wants to go out and kill is this asshole officer. 
who's like a rich guy, like, you know, richer, you know, like, no, that's very interesting. And like, what did the military do, but stop the draft? And it's like, they didn't stop the draft out of the love of their hearts. They stopped the draft so that the military wouldn't collapse. Basically. It's very interesting. Well, Jimmy, um, I know it's a short podcast for you, but we've hit the two and a half hour mark and that's a, that's a good place to wrap up. And rather than, you know, obviously you've plugged your podcast. I think people know what to follow with you. I want to plug some, a few things to you and mm-hmm. anyone who came here to listen to you. Uh, I want to plug, uh, I think top of my list was blue mafia. It's a book by Tim Tolka about the history of the first con- uh, consent decrees in the nation, which were uh, came up in Warren and Steubenville. And mm-hmm. it's a harrowing tale. It, I mean, he's trying to get it into a screenplay, but I told him, I'm like, this could do the wire treatment. Like this could be a series like treat. And it follows the, the story of a lawyer who came from a pedigree of lawyers, but he was sort of the black sheep and gave way too many fucks like McNulty. Um, about like black people being mistreated that hit were his clients. And he pulled every connection he had to like get feds to come in and make the consent decree happen. And just all the stories of how a dirty prosecutor op- operates. And, you know, if you, you're a fan of the wire and true crime blue mafia and mm-hmm. Tim Tolka is, is, um, I found him because I was looking up um, someone was protesting the death of someone named Matthew Burroughs and Warren during the summer of George Floyd. And uh, I just wanted to research, Oh, who was that person found a great medium article by Tim and his book and his byline. Mm-hmm. And it was a couple of months into journalism for me reached out, came on my podcast and he's just been a, exactly the kind of journalist I was hoping is out there just really cares completely like, Oh, I like what you're doing and I I can help with this. He's done copy editing and fact checking for me. So Tim Toka, uh, blue mafia. And then I'm would definitely plug him to be, you know, if you read his book, he'd be a great guest. Yeah. That sounds interesting. And, um, the only other one I think I put to you is, uh, Richard Montgomery, if he might come on, if you wanted to just get the like parapolitics of Cleveland and make it something timely that takes down Chantel Brown. Uh, <laughs> he's, he's a fun one and, and he will just roll and he's a, he, we have him on the wire because he actually lived in Baltimore, came up like for a long time. He was there when it was airing and now works in like calling out a lot of police abuse and actually ran for mayor in a local town and lost because he would not play nice with any of the people in the machine. (laughs) And then the last thing, um, was just the, is the weirdest one that, um, I just, I need to reread it, but I always am interested in other people's takes, especially with the fields you've looked into. And we were talking about mesmerism and people with strange ideas about stuff is this obscure German scientist named, uh, Theodore Fechner, Fechner, F-E-C-H-N-E-R. And he wrote this book called The Little Book of Life After Death. And it's this attempt to scientifically explain collective consciousness with charts like that that circle flower that Elizabeth Holmes adopted for Theranos. And, <laughs> and it doesn't get weird or like, I mean, to any degree, it's actually, it's like, it's a very interesting articulation of a lot of things, but it was right around like the, the same time like late 1800s and if you look up his uh wikipedia page he was groundbreaking in some things about 
measuring electric current in the brain like he was the first one that showed you could do that or something or something along those lines but yeah those are my three recommendations of uh guests well theater fechner's dead but his book is kind of <laughs> wild and i think you'd dig it <laughs> we'll channel him <laughs> and see what he has to say from the grave 